Let us turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, where I will read verses 11 through 15. Colossians 2, 11 through 15. Beginning to read at verse 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. In him were you also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. I'm entitled the sermon this morning, Inter Interesting Equivalencies. And I'm speaking of the equivalency between circumcision and baptism that we have that's given to us in the text here where the two, the two words are basically used interchangeably. Circumcision and baptism. Uh, two interchangeable concepts, and we notice that that they are, in terms of our sacraments, that they both are the sacraments of entry into the body of Christ, circumcision being that a sacrament of the Old Testament that marked the entry into one's uh, membership in Israel, and then baptism, the sacrament of the New Testament church, which enables us to be counted among those who are uh, in the church of Christ. And in, in terms of Christ's command, the great commission he commanded, the, he commanded the people, the preachers, to go forth and preach the gospel and baptize, Matthew 28, and baptize and disciple people into the kingdom of God. So we have these, these two things, but we find them, it, it might surprise you, to think, well, how did this happen? How did Christ, how did Jesus begin a discussion of these two sacraments, Old Testament and New Testament? How did he begin get a conversation on them at this point in Colossians? Does it not seem a rather rude and, uh, and uh, uh, new kind of novel idea to be interjected in the text? He has not been preaching or teaching about the sacraments to this point. He has been preaching and teaching about Christology. Uh, the book of Colossians, and this uh, has to do with the context of this, according to your outline that you have in the bulletin. The book of Colossians <clears throat> majors and focuses on Christology, on our doctrine of Christ, and it shows how central or how core the doctrine of Christ is for all, every other thought that we have. 
every other uh, way that we look at reality. So it shows how Christology is really a core concept to understand ourselves, understand life, understand the creation, understand our vocations and everything. Um, and uh, Colossians, where, whereas there are other parts of the Bible, like in Romans, where it teaches about um, how Christ and the study of Christ is central to a doctrine of salvation, uh, Paul in Colossians goes even deeper. And he shows how Christology is really the foundations because Christology is a study of Christ. So he goes and he shows us how Christ is the foundation of all things. How the whole creation, the whole cosmos was created through Christ. Christ was that pre-incarnate word spoken by the Father. And through Christ, through that word, all things came to pass. Through Christ, through the, through the, the word of God, light came to pass, Genesis 1. And then after the light, all things, the heavens and the earth and Ultimately, the animals and mankind and all things are made. And after all things were made through Christ, then God pronounced it good and uh, celebrated his Sabbath day. As we have at the end of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2. But then Colossians even goes deeper than that. And it says in chapter 1 that not only is Christ the foundation of history, but that Christ is the foundation of all being. Uh, that is the, uh, the foundation of all things physically considered. Uh, Christ is like the most fundamental lesson in physics. So that the wisdom that we see in such things as it's the atomic structures or in biology and embryology, how embryos show a similarity to one another in all the animals, that, that Christ is fundamental. It was through the logic and the order and the and the and the, or, the order of Jesus Christ that all things came to pass. And so not only is Christ the, the, the foundation of history, he's the, he's the foundation of all stuff. In him, the Bible says in Colossians, in him all things consist. How are things held together? What's the power behind magnetism or the atomic structures? It's Jesus Christ, in terms of his eternal being and his decrees to bring about the creation. And so Paul, in this, in this book of Colossians, gives us an intensive seminar on the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ who then became flesh and walked among us as the Gospel of John so carefully details in his first chapter. So Christ is so uh, fundamental. And uh, as we read uh, in verse 9, right before this passage that we just read, it says, For in him that is in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principalities and power. So that's like the crescendo of this first this first chapter of how Christ, through redemption, 
how we can be united with this Christ who is so fundamental uh, to uh, all of life and all of being. And it's after that, then, that you see we have this, uh, this interesting equivalency between uh, baptism and uh, circumcision. Verse 11 says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then it goes on from there. But it mentions these, uh, well, in verse 12, then buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised you up from the dead. Uh, and you being dead in your circumcised, uh, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And so we see where the Lord uses these two words, circumcision, baptism, um, sin, uncircumcision. We see where God uses these two words um, together synonymously. He uses them almost as um, uh, uh, synonyms of each other. A synonym is, uh, synonyms are two words that are very similar. And when we, when we see these words used this way in the text, it behooves us to see their continuity, not their, not their contrast. And so this has come up for much theological debate over the years. Some people do not really want to see these words uh, uh, considered as synonyms. They want to show, even though Christ would bring them together here in the text, in one paragraph, even though he would parallel them in one place, there are people who come to the text and want to show how different they are. <laughs> It's, it's foolish when on the face of it, in the word, the verbum dei, we have this similarity, this continuity between the two. In him were you also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him up from the dead. And so... The number two point on my sermon outline is that both uh, circumcision and baptism indicate a union with Christ. Now we know in the Old Testament that the Old Testament said that the saints, the prophets of the Old Testament, saw Jesus from afar. They, they saw that they were people of redemption. They saw that, that they could not fellowship with God unless they obtained a perfection through the sacrifice. This was the great lesson that the Pharisees denied, and therefore they fell aside when the Messiah came. But for those believers like Mary and Joseph and like Eli, the father of John the Baptist, uh, they understood these things. Uh, and the, many of the women, uh, the humble people of the Old Testament, understood these things. David who saw these things from afar. And so <clears throat> when they saw them from afar, they delighted, they delighted in Christ, even though he had not been yet born, even though they had not seen his face. They saw his, they saw his uh, 
definition. They saw the picture that was needed. They saw the high priest and the high, the prophet and the king that they needed to obtain their inheritance in this world. And so in the Old Testament, in the days of circumcision, they saw these things through faith and they began to understand them through faith. They were brought together out of their paganism. The, uh, the uh, <clears throat> call to worship that I used this morning, I love it. Because it shows this, this continuity between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. Uh, Arise, shine, it says, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Risen upon who? He says, he says for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people, the goyim, the unbelievers. But, it says, the Lord will arise over you. The Lord will arise over who? The Lord will arise over Israel, uh, with whom God tabernacles. The Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The glory of God was seen in the Old Testament temple, in the tabernacle. As it shone, and sometimes wreaked havoc on the people when they wandered and disdained, and sinned against the Lord. And so God opens up the promise of this in verse 3, the Gentiles shall come to your light, people of God, and kings to the brightness of your rising. When did this happen more fully than at Pentecost? When the peoples of the world uh, found in Jerusalem came and were baptized in the Holy Spirit and began to prophesy, could hear the, the, the prophecies of the apostles then began to prophesy themselves about the glories of the great works of God and how God had come into this world to raise up a sanctified people, not a fallen people, not the fallen people of Adam, but the, the, the redeemed people of the new Adam. How lovely, how beautiful this could be. And so uh, in the Old Testament, it was understood that the people of God were united with God through the sacrifice. Colossians 10 is it that says that you, we cannot, we cannot fellowship with both uh, the sacrifice of the altar and demons. When people fellowshiped with the sacrifice of the Old Testament, they were fellowshipping with Christ from afar, even though they didn't understand everything about Jesus, even though they did not see him yet. And so, uh, this idea of circumcision and baptism, without fully explaining them at this point, the, the thing that, that, that was most important about them was that they symbolized the ingrafting of the people of the world with, with the Lord and with his gospel. And that's why here this follows after, after Paul teaches the people about how fundamental Christ is for understanding the world. Then he comes into chapter 2 here and he begins to talk about the redeemed people, uh, the people of Israel, the people of God. And uh, he begins to speak and to fund fundamentally regarding their faith. And uh, in this passage here, he's exhort he ends up exhorting them. If you've been circumcised in Christ, if you've been baptized into Christ, then follow him. Do not get caught up with the distractions of theology, or the, especially the theology of the world, but get caught up with the theology of Christ. 
And so the, the Christology that he began with teaching here in Colossians, the, the fundamental relationship of Christology or Christ to everything that is, he now begins to show how it's essential for understanding our redemption. And in talking about redemption, how better to start than to talk about the very, the very beginning of redemption, of how we come through faith to uh, be circumcised, how we come through faith to be baptized, how these two uh, sacraments are sacraments are, are holy rituals through which we are in, 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 uh, in included in the church of Christ. In the, in the Psalms it will say, the, the Lord is my high tower, the, the Lord is my castle or my, the, my bulwark. Well, there you have two synonyms. The high, high tower, the bulwark, or the, the castle walls. Two things that are synonymous together. They both stand for basically the same thing. And so here in this second chapter of Colossians, we see these, this relationship between circumcision and baptism being um, synonymous with our union with Christ. In the Old Testament, in order to be united with the Lord, you had to be circumcised. If you were not circumcised, then you were not considered to be a person of God. You were the goyim of, of, uh, of uh, Isaiah 60. You were part of the people of the world, part of the uncircumcision, part of the people of darkness. But if you were circumcised, then you had the knowledge of God. Some people will say, oh, they didn't, they didn't understand the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament in that sense. There was not that intimacy of of spirituality in the Old Testament that we have in the New Testament. And I challenge them to read the Psalms. How can you read a Psalm like 23 or, or uh, 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 some of the 59, 39? How can you read some of these Psalms where the piety of David embarrasses us. We, we read these psalms and we say, how far am I from you, O Lord? How, why have I not listened to you like David listened to you? Why do I not have the spirituality of David? These great Old Testament saints were godly men and women. And they were, uh, they were true Israelites. And they pointed the way uh, for Christians in the days of Jesus Christ to have some of the same uh, some, of the, some of the same uh, sensitivities. Now the third point here in verse 12 is that both circumcision and baptism symbolize Christ's work. And in effect we've gone, in Colossians, we've gone from considering Christ as the creator or the instru instrument of creation, more theologically um, appropriately said, the instrument of creation, the fundamental of creation, We've gone from that to see that he's fundamental to our salvation here in chapter 2. Uh, fundamental to our faith in him. And of course, Paul began with that theme in the very first chapter of Colossians. But he, he went from that to talking about how Christ is fundamental to all things. And now he's come back to explore the relationship of faith to us in our lives. And so in this case, we see in verse 12 where uh, Paul says, buried with him in baptism, in which you all were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. 
And so uh, we see that this is speaking about this union with union with the Lord, and um, uh, that it has to do with life, uh, with a, a life and death. But it, it's focused here upon the life of Christ, buried with Him in baptism. So it focuses upon how Christ was buried in death through his uh, redemptive experience here in this world. And uh, Christ went through a kind of baptism. He spoke to his disciples at the end of time. He said, you, you cannot be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. He was speaking of his death upon the cross. He knew that his disciples could not bear to be crucified because they needed him to be crucified first so that he could be raised from the dead and then enable them to go through their crucifixions because by then he would have the life-giving power to provide for them. And so buried, buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, why did God raise Jesus from the dead? He raised him from the dead because Jesus was not worthy of death. He, he was worthy of death in the sense that he uh, had the sins of his people imputed to him, but he was not worthy of death in the sense that he was inherently unrighteous because at the depth of Christ's being, there was this rich, profound righteousness that could not be buried, that could not be eclipsed, that could not be denied. And so even though he was killed and executed for us, uh, the inherent righteousness of our Lord uh, was enough to qualify him before the Father as one who would live forever, who would receive the riches of righteousness, the reward of righteousness, namely eternal life, eternal fellowship with the Father. And so verse 12 says that he was raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So in one sense, the Son was raised by his own righteousness, but the, as the, inasmuch as the figures of the Trinity work together coordinately, he's raised by the uh, command of the Father. The Father would not see a situation of unrighteousness occur. He could not. And so when he looked upon his son with his mantle of death overhanging him, the righteousness of Christ was so much more powerful than the sins of his people that the Father, the Holy Judge, could not condemn the Son, but he must raise him up unto eternal life based upon the beautiful righteousness, the, the love of the Son, the perfect love of the Son, which could not uh, be uh, besmirched or undone. And so he was raised from the dead. So, so both circumcision and baptism indicate union with Christ. Both circumcision and baptism symbolize Christ's work. And then thirdly, in verse 13, we see that both circumcision and baptism arise, uh, involve death and life. When the people of God came in the Old Testament to faith in Jehovah God, to the, the faith of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were commanded to receive this bloody sign uh, that, that God had instructed Moses or Abraham about that was an indicative of death. The, the circumcision was a threat of death 
for the, the families who came close to God. It was a sign that your, all your progeny would cut, be cut off in their carnality. But it was also a sign of hope because you were circumcised. Uh, you were circumcised with the symbol of death, but in, God, in God's promise, it was a symbol of life also because God said, receive this symbol, this symbol of death. But then I will, I will show you, I will find a way, even though you are worthy of death, I will find a way for you to be worthy of life. And you and your children and your children's children may discover the gospel through me. And even then he was pointing on this eighth day of this eighth day ceremony, he was pointing to the fact that his son, that Christ would someday come. And it was on the eighth day that Christ rose again from the dead. And it's on the eighth day then that the first of the early church changed its day of worship because they saw the magnificence of what God had done. And so in the Old Testament, circumcision was a bloody symbol that showed it was a bloody symbol of death unto life. And in baptism, baptism was also a sign of death in the sense that, that we are put under the water. But in the same way that the Old Testament people were put under the water as they escaped from Egypt, but they lived through the water, it says in 1 Corinthians, uh, even, though, even though it was a symbol of death, it was a symbol of life also because God was with them and God would bring them out through this flood. And so when we baptize our children today, even though we don't use the flood waters, we don't pour the water over our children into the bucket so they're gasping for air, it's still a symbol biblically of death and life. And so we see that spoken of or referred to here in the 13th verse. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with you, having forgiven you all your trespasses. They are, they are dead in their trespasses and the uncircumcision of their flesh, but they are made alive by the Spirit. They're made alive by the Spirit of Christ because they've been united with him. And so if we're united with him, then we receive the fruits of faith, namely new life in him. The 14th verse, then we see that both of these involve grace. Uh, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So it speaks here of all of the, all of the sins of our lives that were, you could make a list out of them. And um, he, he indicates that that is, that is part of the idea of the sacrificial system. But they've been wiped out. He's, the, 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 Jesus Christ has wiped out the list of sins in our lives because our sinful life is swallowed up in our redeemed life and our union with Christ. And so it's totally lovely. Both involve grace. Some people say that no circumcision is a sign of works. They, they juxtapose works or works of the law of the Old Testament like the Pharisees did. The New Testament speaks of the connection but it says that was a pharisaical way of thinking. 
The people of God didn't get circumcised in order to die. They got circumcised in order to live. They didn't get circumcised in order to be identified with unbelief. They got circumcised to, be, to identify with belief. And so it was wonderfully hopeful. Both of these symbolize grace. We see in the stories in the New Testament of the Philippian jailer and people like that, that they saw the, they saw the power of God, they saw the existence of God, they saw the power of God all surrounding or all integrally related to Jesus Christ, the one whom they had persecuted, as the Apostle Paul did. And now they saw these things so close to Christ and identified with him. And so they began to obey Christ immediately. They and their households, they they got baptized because they wanted to be united with Jesus Christ. And both of these, that was a symbol of grace. Just as circumcision was a symbol of grace in the Old Testament. Now lastly, in verse 15, uh, Paul says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made his public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. We do not make enough uh, point of this in our preaching today especially because it has some political overtones to it. When our Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected, this certainly had things to say spiritually and theologically, but it also had overtones of politics. Why? Because who was it that had pronounced death, Jesus Christ worthy of death? It was a Roman court. It was the imperial court of Rome who stood for Caesar. And when Jesus was raised again from the dead, it was like there were two voices speaking. Caesar said, thou art worthy of death. The father from the highest points of heaven said, uh-uh, he is worthy of life. There was a dispute there at Golgotha. There was a dispute at the crucifixion site. And who won? Whose voice pre predominated? Whose who's, uh, uh, fiat or human voice or voice, I should say, carried the day? Was it not the pronouncement of the Father? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Rise up. And receive thy glory and thy inheritance above with me. And so Romans 1 says, Romans 1 makes a point of this, and Colossians 2 has a point of this. Um, having disarmed principalities and power, he made us public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, they, namely the, 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 uh, the crucifixion and the the. the, the the circumcision, the baptizing with which he was baptized, he made a public spectacle of the death penalty of imperial Rome. I would say this is why even today the politicians shudder when they, when they their brains even come close to thinking about these things, because it indicates Allah Psalm eighty three or eighty two. It indicates that they themselves will be held accountable. They are not authorities in and of themselves, but their authority comes from the authority of God. And they must, first of all, if they expect their authority to be respected, they must first respect the authority of God. Authority is all connected. It's, it's a, a continuity of authority. There's an organic union 
between the authority of God and the authority of men. Oh, how men love to deny this. They want their own authority, even as they dispute the authority of the living God. And by the way they behave, it indicates that they have no authority. Now, the Bible says they do have, despite their contradiction, Romans 13 says that they do have authority. But that's because God is there, and God, and God has established his own authority, despite the contradiction that they insinuate by their lives and by their foolishness. And so, um, in, the, in, this, in, this, in the triumph of Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ made a public spectacle of these things. And all of this comes from this continuity between circumcision and baptism, the circumcision of Christ, the baptism of Christ, the, the, bloody, the bloody beginnings of our Lord Jesus Christ in the crucifixion, and the bloodless resurrection of Christ as he triumphed over all of these things. <clears throat> um, and uh, Paul is going to argue now, I'm, I'm not going to go into that with this really now, but Paul is going to argue in the rest of this chapter that this idea ought to possess our lives and that there's no way that we ought to go back and, and go from faith to works, as so many in that day did. And um, this reminds me of a, of a great saint of the Reformation, of the English Reformation, named uh, Hugh Latimer. Uh, Hugh Latimer is one of the great um, martyrs of the English Reformation, dying in 1555. Latimer became a bishop in the English church, but he began his life as a, as a real simple person. He was the son of a farmer, greatly gifted though in mind and study. And so he ended up, the son of a farmer, this commoner, he ended up being educated in Cambridge, the University of Cambridge. <clears throat> he became a priest, and initially he was a loyal defender of Roman Catholicism. But he was led to salvation by the reformer Thomas Bilney. I don't know whether you remember any of the stories that I've told about Bilney, but Bilney was kind of a humorous priest. He witnessed to Latimer, and he could not get him to, to understand the gospel. And so Bilney went to him to confess his sins. And he confessed how, uh, how he confessed how, what Jesus had done to his heart, as if it were a problem. <laughs> but it was the gospel. And uh, Hugh Latimer heard the gospel through this confession. Uh, in 1524, Bilney is said to have knelt before him and said, let me tell you what happened to my heart uh, by way of this confession. Uh, ultimately, the pair became close friends, often meeting for Bible study and prayer. For Latimer, Christian faith and Christian action went hand in hand. He was renowned for visiting the sick, poor, and those in prison. He became known as a great preacher. One of the reasons he ended up being a martyr was that he believed so much in preaching as a, as a bishop. And he, 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 he denied the idea that bishops could be men of office and not of the pulpit. Uh, one of the things that he taught, which was close to my heart, he taught all jobs and vocations have, have value. He said, let no man disdain to follow him, Christ, in a common calling, 
and occupation. Hugh Latimer was no reformed pietist which, who talked only of theology. No, he, he, he loved, he was known for being an evangelist of the common man. He loved to visit the prisons and that sort of thing and, uh, and speak with the common men. And he found, he found a way to relate the gospel to these common people. As the Reformation picked up pace in England, largely thanks to Tyndale's translation of the New Testament, Latimer grew in stature as an evangelical leader. However, he never lost the common touch of his farming background. Uh, he, he understood the dignity and drudgery of everyday life, reflecting the poorest plowman is in Christ equal with the greatest prince. I, I love this. Uh, so often today in our churches, we, found, we find in our, in, the, in our pews people that don't seem to understand that the work, the work that they're, the vocational life that they're involved with is, is part of God's plan. They think, oh, only if I become a preacher will my life count. It's crazy. It's not biblical. Anyway, Latimer uh, was especially critical of clergy who emphasized religious duty, but not the cross of Christ. He encouraged his congregation to see good works, not, as the, not in the form of penance, or lighting candles, but rather in the love of their neighbor. And so he had a spirituality about himself, the love of Christ. He would have been one of those Old Testament people who was circumcised in, uh, to, to, to be united with God, that he'd have a life with God, waiting for the Christ who was bound up and symbolized in the uh, circumcision procedure. For his commitment to the cause of Christ, Latimer came, became a prime product, our target. Despite being an old man in poor health, an example had to be made. In September 1553, he was arrested on charges of treason, dispatched to the Tower of London. He ended up sharing a cell with Thomas Cranmer, the archbishop at the time, John Bradford, a famous preacher and theologian of the early English Reformation, and his friend, Nicholas Ridley. In March 1554, Latimer, Cranmer, and Ridley stood trial at Oxford. They were asked to agree or disagree with three articles of learning on the physical presence of the body of Christ in the Mass. Latimer held up his copy of the New Testament and said he could not find the Mass in it. As he was led away, he knew he would be burned alive. He was eventually sentenced to be burnt at the stake, which was carried out outside Beloyal College on the 16th of October, which is yesterday on the calendar, 1555. Ridley was beside him. Cranmer reportedly wept as he watched his two friends being burned alive from his prison cell. The two men prayed together before being fastened with rope. As the wood caught fire, Latimer was heard shouting, preaching through the flames, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust shall never be put out. These flames and this prayer took place a bare five years before John Knox landed again in Scotland 
and the Scottish Reformation began that summer, the summer of 1560. Think about that. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we pray that we would be circumcised in Christ, and baptized in Christ. We pray that we might be united with Christ. We pray that our relationship with him might be one of spirituality and not outward circumstances only. We pray that it might be summarized in the love that we have with thee and in the willingness that we have to be sacrificed for thee. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.